0: today. It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Wednesday, October the 13th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the Podcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, now Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com, no G, Mike Silva at Talking podcast.com. And of course, check out our friends as we're part of the fan sided podcasting network. Check out the risingapple.com. Rising apple great stuff going on over there. We really appreciate and love our new partners over at uh, Minute Media. All right, uh, this is going to be a quick one, not any kind of big introduction, no big monologue. I wanted to come to you. This is really a, a midweek special edition of the show, and with the situation with Luis Rojas not being renewed and and potentially setting up the offseason as the Mets are, for the fourth time in five years, really trying to restructure uh, their front office and now doing their field staff as well at the same time. There's going to be a lot to talk about as the rest of the remaining teams of the postseason are uh, finishing up with uh, you know somebody obviously winning a championship. Uh, we're going to be going through so much stuff that I didn't want this particular piece to get lost. Now, when the documentary "Once Upon a Time in Queens" the ESPN Thirty for Thirty came out, um, I had reached out to Nick Davis and was trying to, uh, you know, get him to be part of our show that you know we had done about a month ago, which uh, you know our friend Eric Sherman, the great author, was part of, and you know Nick's schedule didn't work out, but. He did agree uh, to come on a little bit later on and I had a chance the last day of the regular season as the Mets were finishing up a meaningless game against the Atlanta Braves down in Atlanta uh, to come on and chat a little bit. Now Nick is the director of the 30 for 30 big Mets fan and, and I think we all could agree as the season became lost and there was a lot of meaningless baseball being played. ...throughout the final uh, 10 to 15 days of September. This was a bit of a uh, respite from all of that. And uh, it was nice to kind of go back in time. I know it's a topic that has been to a certain degree exhausted. And maybe we've re-exhausted it over the last couple of weeks or so... ...when the, the film came out. But I really wanted to get Nick's perspective on the show. I wanted to hear his thoughts on some of the interviews... ...and some of the highlights... Maybe what was left uh, out and, and maybe give us a little inkling of what was left out. And then, of course, some of the things that come after, as I know there's been trading cards, there's a companion book, there's all sorts of things that uh, make this more than just a four-part series, but just a, a, in total, a real celebration of Mets history, which is something that we like to do here at the Talking Mets podcast. So sit back going to take a quick break. When we return, you're going to hear. This is a couple of weeks old, but, you know, look, there's no, there's no expiration date on this. Nick Davis, the director of the 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens, joined me last day of the regular season before all the chaos broke out, and we talked about the film, we talked about his experience putting it together, and maybe he gave us a nugget or two. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with Nick Davis, director of the 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens, right after this. <laughs>
2: Once upon a time, there was a city that had a dream.
3: There was something larger than the '86 Mets. Carter, Hernandez, Gooden, Strawberry. We was cocky. We had swagger. We had a group of guys that loved to fight. We were a team that wasn't going to get stepped on anymore. It was just another day in the life of the '86 Mets.
0: We're back, and I'm joined by the director of a great 30 for 30, my favorite I'm biased. Nick Davis, Once Upon a Time in Queens. And Nick, welcome to the program. And here's what I'll tell you. I'll start off here. You knock the old VHS, a year to remember, off the pantheon of 86 Mets uh, retrospectives. Now, I'm dating myself because I'm sure there's plenty of people you've run into that weren't even born and don't have the VHS. I still have the VHS. I can't play it. I have to go on YouTube and find it, but I actually have
3: the VHS. So welcome to the program yeah. and thanks for doing this. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. Uh, and I, There's there's room enough on that shelf for both of us, I think. There you go.
0: You know, um, this is uh, an interesting project because when I first heard it come out, and maybe a year ago that it was coming out, I said, wow, how is somebody going to do an 86 Mets Look back, it's been talked about so much. Even Keith Hernandez seems exhausted about talking about the 80s team, said it's time for a new era, time for a new team. And there's been good teams since then. But the 86 Mets obviously are the team that won it all. So, you know, how did you go into this knowing how difficult it would be to tell a different
3: story? Well, what's funny is it, this story had never been told before in a complete way, cinematically, in, the, in, in long form. You know, they had done, SNY did a great 20th retrospective. And there was, as you mentioned, A Year to Remember, which, you know, was everybody's Christmas gift in 1986. But nobody had done it in the era of long form documentaries. And so there were a number of people who were like, oh, no, not this again. And I would think, what, what do you mean? Again, nobody, it hasn't been done. And it's a great story sitting out there. Um, and in this era of, you know, OJ Made in America and, and then Last Dance, which came as we were working on this, it just seemed like well, the, the timing was right. The guys were of the right age to be reflective and, and in some cases were remorseful over their behavior, but also still had their memories intact. And uh, it just felt like, uh, you know, we, 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 we hit the sweet spot in terms of that. Um, and so I, it never bothered me that, that people would say, oh, no, no, not this again, because there have been so many books and articles. Um, but, you know, a, a, a documentary, a film is a very different thing from a book or a, a magazine article. Absolutely. Uh, because it can hit you emotionally uh, in a totally different way. And so that was our opportunity.
0: Absolutely. And when you talk about the video, it was pretty interesting to look at some of the old clips. Now, we've seen some of them, but coming back from commercial stuff, anytime you look at an 80s clip, even my wife was watching with me. She goes, look at the graphics. We take for granted how media has changed so much in uh, 40 years, uh, 30, 40 years. And, and, And I was a kid watching baseball. And that was like, wow, this is. You know, back then you didn't think about it. Now we're kind of like in this weird media world where everything is almost like in our living room. I, I, that was one takeaway how different the viewing experience was uh, the more you look back.
3: Almost like yeah. how we
0: used to look back in the 80s, the 40s and 50s maybe. And, and yeah,
3: exactly. I think for those of us who, uh, you know, are, are old enough to have lived through it and remember it, it feels very fresh and current, you know, present day. But um, yeah, when you jam it up against what's actually on TV now, it's a completely different thing. And that is something we really wanted to do was bring people back to that time and place, New York City in the '80s, and the TV graphics, as you say, were were a huge part of that, and the announcers and you know radio announcers and local news guys and stuff. We really wanted to immerse the viewer back then.
0: One of the things I took away also, and I think you brought it back, and I think it's missing today, and I think it's going to be harder to bring back because of the way that we cover sports, is it truly was storytelling. Uh, I think it was Chuck D that said, you know, it's a trilogy, 84, 85, 86. I can make the argument like Star Wars, you could do another three, 87, 88, 89, 90. And I think... Um, Storytelling is looked at as a bad thing today, narratives and not looking at the numbers and, and not being real about uh, almost like a, a Wall Street portfolio, of the team. And, and I think it's taken away some emotion and it's created a, a bad, toxic portion of the fan base, unfortunately. Um, but I think you brought that back and maybe some newer fans could take away like, hey, that's what sports is about. It's a soap opera. It's a soap opera for, you know, my old intents, but it's real life. Uh, and certainly the 86 Mets were soap opera.
3: Yeah, well, that's why we watch. I mean, we watch because we want to see these guys win. But, you know, if they're uh, interesting characters, then we, you know, fall in love with them and want to see how they're doing and watch their slumps. And these guys, the 86 Mets, were such a bunch of characters and personalities that it made that team really worth watching, even if you weren't even a, a sports fan. Um, I, and I think it's a balance, you know. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, everybody, uh, I'm obviously a Mets fan, you know, there was a lot of sort of uh, raised eyebrows when they were saying, Oh, no, no, we have great team chemistry, don't mess with the team chemistry at the trading deadline. And then whatever moves they did make, obviously, the season went south kind of quickly. Um, but, but I think that team chemistry is, is a real thing. And, and when there is a legitimate feeling of teamwork and sacrifice uh, on a team, and I'm not saying the 2021 Mets had this. By the way, I, I didn't see a lot of guys giving up their at bats to drive a guy from second to third or or get the man in, you know, uh, from third. But um you know, but when when that exists, it is a real thing, and and it is tough to quantify and measure by analytics. You know, Johnson and, and Ojeda in the film both say it's 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 the makeup, it's the heart. You know, and and that 86 Mets team, they would not accept losing. They just wouldn't.
0: I'll tell you the biggest revelation I've never seen. And I've speak, spoken to Ed Hearn. I've never seen the scuff ball. I don't know. You, you've you solved the caper. I've talked I talked to Terry Poole many, many years ago who was on the Astros team. Yeah, Everybody yeah. gives you that coy answer. We kind of knew the answer. When I saw the the scuff ball, I'm like how could they not think, you know, in the era where you still had Joe Necro pitching. And, and I think a year later, Joe Necro, yeah. I guess, got suspended. And it's mind boggling. And I thought to myself, and I had Eric Sherman on the program a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, Eric, um, I think basically everybody hated the Mets. I mean, Peter Uberwath wasn't a big Keith Hernandez fan. Uh, Their arrogance, which really is not a big deal by today's standards. When you think about the celebrations today, I'm like, geez, a fist pump. (laughs) But here it is. You know, it's almost like they had to overcome us versus the world. They created it. But, man, you, you solved the caper. That's clearly, to me, that's a scuff ball, unless Ed Hearn is doing something over the last 30-somewhat years, which I don't think Ed would do. But uh, it was interesting. That was a fun thing to say.
3: Yeah, that was fun. I mean, Ed was very, uh, you know, when I first contacted him, because I had read that there was a sock of balls that he still had. And, um, I, I you know, he, he was like, yeah, sure, I got them right here. And then, you know, he calls me two days later. I can't find the balls. Where I don't know where the <laughs> balls are. And so it was like a real thing for a couple of months. And then he, his parents, they were in Florida. And so they had to be shipped from Florida to where we were going to interview him in Kansas City. And it was a real uh, it was a real thing. And Ed was very funny about, oh, you only want me. Can I make this joke? You only want me for my ball. You know, <laughs> there you go. I guess you could. You get in trouble with ESPN, not
0: me. Mick Davis, uh, the director of the 30 for 30 uh, Once Upon a Time in Queens. Who was who the most fun to interview? I think yeah, I know who you're going to answer, but who was the yeah. most
3: fun? Well, it's funny. They were all really fun. I think, uh, I mean, Lenny was amazing. I wouldn't say it was fun. It was, I was
0: surprised. Lenny was somewhat, I mean, I'm going to say this I've met Lenny. He could be out there. We, everybody follows him on Twitter. I think he put it together for you as best as he could, right?
3: Yeah, he was great. He, he gave us, I think, I think I was with him for four hours. It was remote. I was in New York. He was in LA. We rented a house. We had sent a producer to his ha- where he was staying to make sure he got there on time. He was totally focused and, and on point uh, and gave us everything we needed for a tremendous uh, and very thorough, engaging, emotional, hilarious profane uh, interview. Um, But I guess just personally, you know, I was a Daryl guy. Um, And so uh, I, the one interview I, one flight I took during the height of the pandemic, I did fly to St. Louis, uh, you know, masked up in like a hazmat suit and all that, and and interviewed Daryl for a full day at his place uh, outside St. Louis where he lives, crazily enough. Um, And I mean, he said like, God has a great sense of humor that he would put me in St. Louis, you know? Um, and, and I think that may have been just personally the highlight, but really all of them were so terrific and and open, you know. I mean, Doc and Keith and uh, really all, and Kevin Mitchell was great. Um, I think maybe he sort of exceeded my expectations. I didn't know what to expect from him. Uh, but, you know, Wally was great. Ray Knight was great. Mookie, I mean, that you, that's yeah. what made these guys, that's what made the team so amazing back then was they all had such Interesting and dynamic personalities, and and still to this day, they're all really interesting people. Um, and so that's you know that that makes for a good film, regardless whether it's about baseball or anything else.
0: It's funny because when I first started doing this fifteen years ago, traditional radio podcasting, and the first person I actually got on was the late Gary Cotter mm. And I remember waiting for him to call in, and he called in, and I held on to him for twenty five minutes. And he, to this day, he told me a story. I, I mean. He said, well, my phone's, you know, dying. And I think he was just saying that because he wanted to get off the air. But as a fan and as a young person back then, you kind of, you have to make that transition because obviously you're a director, you're telling a story, but it must have been cool thinking back to when you were young, watching these guys. Now you're there talking to them and they're regular guys. And to a certain degree, having been in some locker rooms, not, not to knock today's players, there is a wall. It is a difference. These are regular guys. I mean, I'm very friendly with Doug Sisk. And the stories, and I mean, Doug's a guy you could just have a beer with, and even a strawberry. Yeah. And and Doc, who I had recently on the show, very down to earth for who they were and how famous they were, and you outlined that in the show how famous they were. They were celebrities. They were Page Six. I don't think Page Six was around, so they were Page Six
3: before Page Six, right? Yeah, no, they were huge, and and I think I think a lot of that is just the years have gone by, and they've become. Um, You know, uh, they 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 become more comfortable speaking to people and speaking to people who are on the other side of the camera. And so they're, you know, and I think that today's athletes probably thirty five years from now, if you sit those guys down, they'd be willing to talk like real people too. Um, So I think that was that was another again advantage that we had. I feel like this film had a lot of advantages. Uh, going into it, which is why I felt so incredibly lucky to be the one to get to do it.
2: Who
0: do you feel you could have died? I mean, you did this during COVID, um, the height of COVID, as you pointed out, who could you have felt you could have dived into more? Is there, there's always going to be something that you wish you like, hey, I I wish we could have looked at that more. Is there, is there any of that? I know it's hard in your position to maybe answer that.
3: No, you know, I I mean, look, the fact is, if My first, our first rough cut was six and a half hours long that that we delivered to ESPN. If ESPN at that point had said, you know what, this is going to be great. We're going to give you six hours. Then I would have a different answer. But because we really did have a limited, I mean, it's hard to say that four hours is limited, but I viewed this as a real epic story. And so there isn't anything we didn't tell or didn't go into that I wish we'd you know, which we had done more of. Do I wish George Foster had said yes ultimately to an interview? He did at one point say yes, and he said no. He said no, then he said yes, and he said no. Right. Um. Yeah, that would have been great. But I'm happy with how we told the George Foster story. Do I wish I had found a place to tell this fantastic Ray Knight story? That's the one that the one that got away is this Ray Knight story, and I just we just never found a place for it where he stops Gary Carter. Uh, and, and Daryl Strawberry from fighting on a t- team bus in St. Louis. And I think the story is probably in Jeff Perlman's book, his great book, The Bad Guys Won. But it, we couldn't make it work uh, anywhere, and we, and we didn't have great coverage and whatever. It was only 45 seconds. We just never found a spot for it. But um, overall, I think that we told the story as best we could um, and left very few things on the cutting room floor that I regret not uh, having included.
0: One of the things going into any project I'm sure you have is you have perceptions of, you know, guys that you don't know. Uh, did anybody, any of your perceptions change on anybody, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, you know, surprises? Is there anything that, you know, you could look at and say, wow, you know, I never expected that.
3: Uh, well, there were a bunch of things. I never expected Keith to talk so openly about his relationship with his father.
0: That's a good I one.
3: Never expect, I never expected to hear Dwight speaks so openly, not just about his drug use and, and the problems dealing with that, which, cause I, I did anticipate that he would talk about that, but I didn't know that he would talk so openly about the trauma he experienced in his childhood. His mother shot his father. His father right. lived, but I mean, that is sure. something, how that affects a person, I don't you know. know. He doesn't know, but he was willing to talk about it and speculate. So I think it was, it was things like that. I don't know that there was any one person who uh, sort of, I I mean, they all did. To be honest, they really all did. Like, um, you know, Mitchell was great. I mean, Kevin Mitchell, we interviewed him. It was pandemic time. We interviewed him at a golf course. He had a tea time. (laughs) So he had to finish up by 1230. And we started the interview at 11. He finished at three, you know, and he was very funny about it. You know, he was like, come on, I got to go, you know, but, (laughs) but he was like, tell these guys, I'm going to, I'll be there. I'll join them on the ninth hole. You know I mean? It was, it was, he was wonderful. And I think they all felt like, look, this is a chance to tell the complete story. So, um, you know, again, I just, I I was really lucky.
0: To me, you brought up Kevin Mitchell. That was one of the names. Um, I heard him uh, recently on a podcast with Brett Boone talking about his career, Mm -hmm. saw him speak to you. I met Kevin at Darrell Strawberry's old restaurant in Queens, for an Mm. event about a decade ago. And he was a little standoffish to me. I'll be honest. I got some 10 minutes out of him. Uh, I could tell the media was still not the, you know, the the people he wanted to talk to, but uh, he's a very smart guy. And I think to me, the perception of who he is, uh, your film changed it a lot. At least if you listen to that podcast from Brett Boone and Mm. your film, I think people could listen And realize Kevin Mitchell is a
3: totally different person
0: than I think maybe the the press has been.
3: I think, and you know, clearly Mets management had the wrong idea about him, and and he's he's got a I don't want to say chip on a full blown chip on his shoulder, but he's he's got an edge because of it, and so he's I think he's wary, and he brings that wariness to his interviews, which in print may not be so good, but for the film it was fantastic. Because he kept saying, oh no, you're trying to get me, you're trying to hook me. I was like, I'm not trying to do anything. But that attitude, that wariness plays right. really well. And, and it's why, you know, we gave him the last word in the film because I didn't say to him, we're trying to get you, but he says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to burn nobody. And it's like, we're not trying to burn anybody, but he brings that. And I think because there's been so much notoriety about this team, they, they did have a hesitation. I think many of them like, oh, you're just trying to get us. I'm not trying to get you. I'm trying to tell your complete story. And sure. look, none of us is perfect. And they all realize that. And so they talk about the imperfections as well as the miraculous, uh, you know, victories and, and ultimate triumph. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fascinating process, I have to say. Fascinating for me as well
0: was you seeing Kelvin Chiraldi in there. Yeah. I told, uh, and there's a book now out about the Red Sox. Like I said, I had Eric oh, Schroeder on the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, you know, first of all, big, big learning. Don't ever talk to your roommate about how you're going to pitch. You never know how they, <laughs> I said to myself as I'm watching, like, why did you do that? I mean, you're a pitcher. They're going to be, they're never a hundred percent going to be on your team. Right. Uh, but I didn't realize, you know, uh, you know, the pain on the other side is usually Bill Buckner the late Bill Buckner uh but Geraldi seems to have a bit of a chip on his
3: shoulder too looking at that um from his time you know a little bit well I think he also feels like you know so much has been made about the fact that he told Mitchell what you know and he's like he couldn't hit a slider of course I'm going to throw him a slider and of course I'm going to tell him (laughs) that like what's the big deal you know Um, and he was really wonderful and it it was terrific. You know, he's now a baseball coach in high school, um, and a really successful one. And I think he's got a great program in Austin. I think it is. And he told me again, you know, six and a half hour cut includes that he uses his experience and the way he psyched himself out on the mound in the 10th inning of game six as a, as a kind of don't do this for his kids, for his students and like his players. It's like, what, what a great thing. To be a, a player whose coach in high school was like, you know, bad in a World Series game and to learn from him. And he's, he's really open about it. And I think that's probably why he, um, he took part in the, in the interview. He wants people to learn. Same thing with Dwight and Daryl. You know, they want people to learn from their mistakes. Uh, and you know, that's a terrific place to get to as a human being, I think.
0: Have you gotten any feedback from the guys now that they've seen it? You know, you mentioned Hernandez, which I agree, you know, that was a very interesting dynamic. And I think it got a little emotional towards the end when he talked about his dad passing. It's almost like when his career ended, his dad was like, you know, I'm done, you know, here. Uh, I thought that was very touching
3: and interesting
0: because Keith is not a, at least in public from what I've seen of him, is not a guy that likes to let
3: the guard down a little bit on that kind of stuff. No, he's not. He's not that emotionally accessible in a way, but he is very honest and so you don't necessarily feel like he's about to, you know, cry in your mm-hmm. in your you know in the, in the interview room but but he certainly opens up. And uh yeah, no, I've heard from several of them and it's been all very positive and nice and and sort of mind-blowing as a met fan to hear from them. Uh and as a filmmaker of course gratifying too. Um but, you know, What was great is they trusted us, you know, they they weren't paid, they weren't part of the production team, nobody saw any cuts or anything, Um, and, and they trusted that we weren't out to get them, and therefore, you know, if you didn't like the 86 Mets, and you wanted to see evidence of their wrongdoing, and that's all you cared about, well, you can watch the film and say, see, see, I knew they were doing awful stuff. But I think more likely is you'll think, oh, wow, they were human just like me. And they got problems and they're, they're, they tried to deal with them as best they could. The end of
0: it was the collapse of the Mets. And, and there's so much to that. And in a lot of ways, you could put Frank Cash in front and center. You, know, you mentioned you know, Mitchell and McReynolds. And, and it's funny, Howard Johnson's name got thrown in there. And Hojo was a very productive player. Post, I mean, Ray Knight's career was essentially over yes. at that point. Yep. You could almost do—I mean, you talk about the cutting room floor—the six hours down to four. That to me could have been like you know, and I don't yeah. know if ESPN would have allowed you to do that. There's so much more you could have done. Yeah, not a criticism, an observation. Yeah, no. I'm I, curious
3: if absolutely. you if you felt that way too. Absolutely. When I first conceived of this, act, before we took it to market as a four hour, I had conceived it as a seven hour, and the seventh hour was afterwards. Um, and I thought, well, geez, that's a great hour. I mean, I'd still love to awesome watch hour. that hour. Yeah. But, um, you know, the marketplace sort of was up for four and then it just became, all right, well, then there's just this aftermath and you do it in, you know, the length of one musical sequence, basically. Um, the sort of, you know, the, the, the Layla model from Goodfellas and standing in place of Layla was the stroke song. Oh, there the you go. You that's know? interesting. And, um, and so we had to get it all in there. And, and I do feel like, it is really sad and tragic. Uh, tragic is a little extreme, but, it, you know, it's sad for Met fans that they didn't win again, and it, it's all very complicated. It's not like it's all Cashin's fault. There were solid baseball reasons to get Kevin McReynolds on that team. There were solid baseball reasons to give Hojo the starting job. He becomes a 30-30 guy. Sure, and Kevin McReynolds, whatever it was, 25 home runs, 90 RBIs a year at least, you know, solid defense but they they didn't have the spark they didn't have that chemistry and and therefore never won again and uh i don't even want to say therefore never won again it's not as simple as a therefore there's it's all alchemical and mysterious and balls taking weird bounces and not bringing in randy myers to pitch to socia. you know i mean there's all kinds of, sort right. of things where it's like any one or those two things had happened a different way, they they might have won again, and they probably could have and should have. you know. If Daryl's not in a conflict with Cashin, maybe he has a more productive second half in 1990 and carries them to the championship again. I mean, there's a lot of what ifs, and and who knows, I think most important, who knows how the ownership change affected things. In November of 86, Fred Wilpon became co-owner Doubleday had bought the team. It was Nelson Doubleday's team until November of 1986, and after that, they never won again. Is that a coincidence? I put that question to Joe McElvain. He laughed (laughs) uproariously and said, no comment. Uh, (laughs) Nope. So, uh, you know, it's it's very hard to pinpoint any one thing and say, this is why. Um, So... Uh,
0: well, if uh, you're listening, first of all, you could get some of that great music that Nick talked about on Spotify. Is there's, there's still a Spotify playlist? I'm sure, right, Nick? Yes, yes. There's Spotify. A Spotify
3: playlist, which is you know, it's totally fun. It's the music from the that's in the documentary, and also just other eighty songs that they put in there that you know are great.
0: Pretty, so. pretty cool. On that, there's also a companion book uh, for Once Upon a Time in Queens, forward from executive producer Jimmy Kimmel. So got some star power going over there. And you also have. Your own project you want to talk about, not baseball related, but there's tons of people who are sophisticated in this audience that may appreciate something other than the Mets, I hope to think. So talk about that as well.
3: Well, a crazy coincidence, which is that on the day the ESPN film, the the film aired on ESPN, a book I've been working on for 19 years about my grandfather and great uncle, Herman Mankiewicz, who people may know as the subject of Mankiewicz. Uh, and the author or co-author with Orson Wells of Citizen Kane and his brother Joe Mankiewicz who made uh, All About Eve among many other films. I wrote a, a dual portrait of the two of them called Competing with Idiots. Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait, and that hit bookstores the exact same day that the film aired on ESPN. So that was just like another kind of crazy coincidence that happened, uh, uh to me anyway in the last months. That's crazy. Will we ever see any of the cutting room floor stuff? Will ESPN allow you
0: to do that? There might be a market for that, especially like we talked about the postscript and all that other stuff.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is one of the great things about the book is that we it, it's essentially an oral history, as you say, which means it's a transcript, but it, it contains lots of stuff that we just didn't have time for in the film. Um, I, you know, that's up to them. It's a money decision. They would need to, you know, pay for the footage and all that. and and And, you know... There are some outtakes of just interview things where I just feel like, well, they should at least just put up some of the interviews. I mean, Lenny's sure. interview, you know, you just put up the raw interview and, and make it. A, <laughs> They're not you know, going to do that one. Make it an on-demand, <laughs> you know, 29 kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think people would get know. a kick out of it. It uh, would definitely uh, be, you know, a midnight show. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That's funny.
0: Well, listen, you've been very generous to your time on a weekend. Thank you so much for doing this. Best of luck to you at your new project. Uh, let's keep in touch. I know you're a big Mets fan. And I I, I say this sincerely. Uh, you've now got the, you know, grand pantheon of 86 <laughs> Mets retrospective. You knocked the VHS to number two on the shelf. Right. Uh, and this is not easy. I'm not just like, this was not going to be easy because I was a skeptic and said, eh, do I really need to watch the 86 Mets? And, you, you captured everybody in that episode one, and I thank you for doing this. Oh, All right, well,
3: thank you. It was a pleasure to be here, and uh, I can come back anytime just to, uh, you know, I, I was going to say commiserate. I shouldn't say commiserate, but to talk about our glorious 2022 World Championship. And, 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 and the next, else comes I'm going to yeah. take you up on that,
0: because maybe there'll be, a. there's obviously going to be a new president of baseball operations. I hope not a new manager,
3: but maybe a new manager.
0: It's, I'm very I, I excited. will tell you, Nick. I'm uh, very
3: uh, bullish about the future of this franchise. I feel yes. very, very good about where we are.
0: And I will tell you, this is probably the most critical off season I think, uh, maybe in their history. And that's an interesting way to look at it because you just did uh, a critical time in team history. So it'll be interesting. We'll take you up on that offer. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Thanks. again, my friend. Thank you for having me, Mike. Take care. Take care, Nick. Be well. And that's Nick Davis, uh, director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, ESPN 30 for 30. Uh, hope you enjoyed this short edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at talkimetspodcast.com. Of course, send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. You could also get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. We're also syndicated now, the fan-sided podcasting network, risingapple.com. Check those guys out. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another show pretty soon. Till then, take care, everybody.